WFAE's David Borex has the story. Tariq Bakari and Larkin Eggleston call their podcast R&D in the QC. Eggleston says they hope to reach people who may not pay attention to the council. Eggleston is 35 and a Democrat. Bakari is a 37-year-old Republican. Despite their political differences, they bonded on the campaign trail in part over their beards, says Bakari. The beards themselves are what truly united us in the beginning. They hope to be an example of how to debate productively across the political divide. Episode 42, we talk about the op-ed I just wrote, we break down the midterm elections with Professor Bitzer, and we talk to Little Rock Mayor Stodola. Welcome to R&D in the QC, episode 42. We're going to be covering about two weeks worth of topics today because we didn't have an episode last week because we didn't have a meeting last week. But we did go out to Los Angeles. Uh, Tarek and I and several of our colleagues, including the mayor, were out in Los Angeles for the National League of Cities Conference. So you will hear uh, from us out in the field from that conference last week. We interviewed Little Rock Mayor and National League of Cities President Mark Stodola. That'll be segment three. In segment two, we're going to do our debrief a week after the election, or a little more than a week after the election. What are the takeaways? What were the big surprises? And we're going to do that with none other than Dr. Michael Bitzer of Catawba College, who is the go-to political elections expert in the central Piedmont area of North Carolina. Uh, So we're excited to have him on here in segment two. But we're going to lead off with a little bit related to last week's election and what that might mean. Uh, Tarek gave me a little sneak peek today of an op-ed he has written that uh, you will all, I'm sure, have access to uh, in the media shortly. But I, I'm very interested. He and I haven't even had a chance to talk about it. We just sat down. Uh, I just read it about a half an hour ago. But it's uh, the post-mortem for the Republican Party in urban areas after what happened last week in Mecklenburg County and Wake County. Um, so, Tarek, give me, Frame the op-ed a little bit. What were your uh, your broader thoughts, and then I will uh, I'll, I'll dig into the details with you. Yeah, sure. So I'm calling it a a, a blue a blueprint for urban Republican survival, and I purpose purposely didn't say the because I don't know what the is. I know this is a that it, according to me, and um, and really what I did did is I I drilled into. The data first. You know I'm a data guy. I love data. So I went into the to the election results, particularly in Mecklenburg, particularly uh, in in what is my district, District 6, and then also a look at District 7 from a city council perspective to show me what happened in those precincts um, this year in the midterms and what does that tell us of what's going to happen next year. And really, I guess the punchline is, um, you know, Things don't look great. I think everyone has pretty much come to that conclusion on their own. But when you really look at the nuanced data, it, it makes me believe that um, Republicans in top 20 cities, this is not for rural America. This is for top 20 cities like Charlotte. Um, if we want to survive as Republicans, we need to, to look long and hard inward and what it is we've been doing. And I'm using this this is a, with a really broad brush because there's a lot of folks out there that are already doing many of the things I recommend, many of the things that I've tried to do. I'm, I've, I personally feel like I've been doing them. The big difference now is I'm going to start um, 
I'm going to start doing them with much more confidence. I'm going to start speaking from my heart more and things maybe I've tap danced around. And, uh, and, and I think that's the only way we're going to survive. Now, I'm probably going to get primaried based on just this uh, and, burn, and burn in flames. But I, I think the premise I've come to is I would rather get primaried standing for something I believe in that is based in my conservative principles, right? But also recognizes there's some contradictions in there and there's messaging and application of those principles that hasn't really happened right. And I, I use the data to really dr drill into that. And then I start talking about, hey, once we really listen and not in our echo chambers, but across the aisle, uh, to where we hear liberals or independents or power 98 or the Latin American community or the LGBT community. Once we listen to what they say, a lot of folks or maybe some may not like what they're going to hear. Uh, but if we want to, to do it, we need to do it authentically and we need to do it um, uh, in a very purposeful way or we're, or we're just going to die. So if it's any consolation, uh, you're probably going to get primaried anyway. I would actually predict that every single person on council uh, will get, there will be a primary next year. So. But I guess my point is the data shows me that even just looking at district six in the midterms, a municipal official that, that represents, it's a decent quality, a guy like Matthew Ridenour, folks like that who were cut from much of the same cloth, they can still win here. I looked at the data and I know I can still win in a general election in District 6. I'm pretty confident in that. Um, but I don't want to maintain the status quo, not stand up for what I believe is where, where the future of this party in, in urban America needs to go and just march towards a slow death in a general election. I would rather do that and, and either be successful and start a new, a new wave, essentially, of younger conservative leaders that can exist in urban cities or just crash and burn in flames in a primary. Well, and the Republican Party here locally, at least, is going to have to decide, do they want someone who's just blindly beholden to what the party lines have been or the, the party messaging has been? who has now, Mecklenburg voters have now demonstrated that Bill James Republicans are no longer welcome in elected office. And so if you get primaried or Ed gets primaried and they say, oh, they, you know, they work with Democrats or they don't agree with 100% of everything the Republican Party is about, then go ahead, put up a Bill James type Republican against any Democrat in this county and watch them crash and burn. So the Republican Party is going to have to have a reckoning about whether they want a, a purist or, or whatever you want to call it coming out of a primary only to get their their rear end handed to them in a general or whether they want to put somebody forward who actually will stand a chance like a Matthew Ridenour who in this case uh, was not victorious but you know there was such a backlash I think to the president um and and I think that it took a toll on on every Republican candidate um one clever suggestion for a name for your your blueprint blueprint for the red party um no thanks yeah but I, you know, here's my thing. A couple of things that you mentioned in this op-ed, and people will see it when they get a chance to read it, are what I have I have told you and told others. I think turn people off more from the Republican Party than just about anything. No one, I've never met anyone that said that they they didn't feel welcome or didn't have any interest in being involved in the Republican Party because of their fiscal policies. I mean, that's not. I think everyone's willing to disagree on that, but. Things like, and you bring them both up in this op-ed, climate change and LGBT rights. The rights of people to marry the, the person that they love and the idea that 
98 or 99% of scientists agree that our climate is changing and it's caused by humans is just an accepted fact. People cannot take seriously a party or candidates who push back on, on those two things. And honestly, and I, I don't, you tell me, do Republicans under the age of 45 generally agree in your opinion at least especially the ones that live in big cities, do they generally agree that climate change is a thing and humans have something to do with it and that gay people should have the right to marry the person that they love? Because if so, I think that opens a lot of doors and it gives you a seat at the table in a lot of rooms that might otherwise be closed off to you. Well, so let me let, let me break, because there's two points that you raised in there that I want to address. Uh, so I'm going to do them in order. The first one you said of, is, is the, the, the fiscal policy and approach of conservatives, right? It, this one has, has been the most bewildering when I've been diving deep into this midterm data, right? So everyone knows kind of who won and lost. But when you look at District 6 and 7, which is going forward, you know, the last two municipal seats that Republicans have in this city, we know the stories of, okay, so Brawley's probably going to lose in 7, St- Scott Stone lost, um, Andy Doolin, my good buddy, lost. Uh, when you look at the Harris-McCready race in both District 6 and 7 uh, precincts, uh, Harris was beat resoundingly, 54 and 58 percent in both of those. So we know that those candidates are, are, are not doing well in those areas. But here's the part about our fiscal policy that really just bewilders me. In District 6, v- uh, in all 35 of my precincts, that voter ID, right, uh, uh, constitutional amendment that was put on the ballot, that passed by over 50%. The income tax cap passed by 54%. It carried 32 of my 35 precincts. In what world did we Republicans lose the high ground on people who are passionate and coming in about lower taxes. And that, to me, is the part where we need to revisit our roots, both nationally but particularly locally and a state level. When did we not become the party of smaller government and, and lower taxes? And how did we lose not get every single one of those votes? So that's number I think one. Even if a voter even if a voter believes that the Republican Party is the more fiscally responsible party, which at this point I'm not sure voters have a lot of faith in either party's fiscal responsibility, particularly at a national level. Um, But I think there are voters, and I would count myself among them, where even if I thought the Republican Party had all the answers to the fiscal questions at a federal, state, and local level, I would still not associate myself with the Republican Party for the particularly and primarily for two of the things that I just mentioned and the the perception that the Republican party has a lack of compassion for those that need help. So let's move on. So let's move on to that second part, right? So I'll start with another piece of data before I kind of tell my, my, the position I've taken in the op-ed on it, the housing bond, right? We've all worked hard on that. You know, I've had my reservations and not because I didn't think the problem was real, but because I wanted to make sure we were approaching it to, to really sustainably solve this problem. The housing bond in all 35 of my district six precincts passed by 65%. So there's one angle, right? Of some of those topics that we know urban cities and the majority of folks care about 65% in my area, which has been a Republican gerrymandered stronghold said yes to those bonds. So how many Republicans have you ever heard campaigning on affordable housing? 
And I'm not saying, okay, well, let's throw that in our talking points now. We, we actually need candidates who believe it and mean it, but don't mean let's throw the, the piggy bank at it and sacrifice everything. They mean, let's find ways to actually solve the problem. And that gets to the other point of, you know, I think once we figure out the fiscal part and get back to our basics there, we need to look at what actually people under 45, under 40, under 35 feel about some of these more either social issues or just other demographics that we also don't talk about. And you know what? People don't give a shit in my age group and below on who can marry who. We have, I have a cousin who's gay. I, I literally like, I, I, it's just been one of those things where I'm like, uh, you know, I, I, I never say what's what I something I don't believe, but I'll kind of maybe avoid some topics. I am avoiding them no more. And I'm just going to read you this 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 one paragraph that's in the op-ed that I think sums it up. And it's after I've kind of teed up the data. I've teed up that we need to go out and listen and listen in different places and really learn. And then how I frame this is what we learn. Some folks that are in this party may not want to hear. Not all of them, but some of them. Right. And this is what that, that, that might, so it's, so it's contextual in what we may learn. We may end up still supporting things like requiring voter ID, but to ensure we aren't suppressing certain voters, we might need to reimagine how we make getting an ID easier in parallel. We may need to start campaigning on solving the affordable housing crisis and upward mobility challenges and actually mean it in our actions. We might need to stop arguing about if climate change is real and instead come to the table to find ways to conserve the environment through innovation while not banking the breaking the bank. To your point there, I don't think anyone is it, it, that's arguing this that's in my camp believes there might not be something to climate change, right? I, I There is, right? Uh, my point is, I'm not going to go over the top on the data. I'm just going to say, you know, it's been a kind of a divisive point of, well, Republicans versus Democrats, climate change, forget all that. It's being good stewards of the environment to find ways to be sustainable, to be cleaner. And it's just smart. It doesn't mean we break the bank and doing something that's going to have very limited impact just to say we did it. But I think that's important. So then uh, also we need, uh, I'll, I'll pick back up where I left off. We need to find even bigger ways to support and champion women and minorities. We, we definitely champion them, but for some reason we've become known as maybe the party where, where those folks aren't welcome or or we don't we don't appreciate them and i know that is painting with a broad brush but we need to figure out how to change that and authentically we might well, need to not, stop it's not for some reason i can t i sent you the uh the picture i took a screenshot of it the other day yeah we need to run candidates and I, I and support sent, I them you the that picture. are there yeah. the the freshman members of the 116th congress and there's three rows of republicans and four rows of democrats um i'm going to quickly ballpark this is like maybe 30 republicans and 45 democrats somewhere in that ballpark all of them at least present now i don't i can't say definitively that none of these republican men have uh you know or maybe hispanic or but they, they all present to me at, at first glance as white men except there is one white woman and then you look at the democratic freshman members incoming members for the 116th congress and it's it's literally the full spectrum of America. It's Muslims. It's it looks it's more than fifty percent women. Uh, the men are of varying ethnic groups, and so I mean that's what America is now. And and so to not even have but one female candidate, but seemingly no candidates of color, um, at least again as far as these headshots would would indicate just doesn't, I don't, I don't think, reflect a party that is seeking to Look, have diverse I, diverse voices. And you are one of the diverse voices for the, you know, people 
probably consider you as someone who is white presenting, but you have an ethnic background. You have a, uh, a foreign born father. And so, I mean, there need to be more people with names that end in vowels in the Republican party. Here's so in my new leaf, I'm turning over of always just speaking honestly and not caring anymore. I will say in a perfect world, I don't care what anyone looks like. If those 30 or so candidates are the best ones and they're all white males, perfect. Great. But, but statistically that's not possible. But, 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 (laughs) and this is the big, but my, 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 my good hyper liberal left-wing friend, Dan Roselli talks about these things called the trust banks and how trust banks, you and I have a high trust bank. We're we're able to have conversations that many others may not across the aisle because we trust each other. I will, I will premise what I just said, though, before that to say we Republicans in urban America don't have a high enough trust bank right now to make a statement like that. And to be honest, when you have women and men and all kinds of different um, races and religions and backgrounds, you're going to have a better um, you're going to have a better representation and a better view. But at the end of the day, if this world was perfect and we had a perfect trust bank and everyone knew our motives were true. No, I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't care what anyone looked like. I would want the absolute best people in those roles. But I'm I'm a pragmatist, and I realize that's not possible. But I I agree. But it, statistically, it would be the same as saying that there's a, a possibility that if you flip a coin thirty times, it's gonna it land on heads every time. That's just looking at it from a male female perspective. If our population is essentially fifty fifty male female, then there's no way that if you have thirty incoming members of Congress the best person for the job in 29 cases out of... I think that would be... I think the odds would be incredibly low. You're right. But on the same token, can I turn that around on you and say, does that same diversity of view, perspective, and type also in top 20 cities apply to Republicans not becoming extinct in your mind? Do we have something to offer? Or is our perspective as good? Does that that, uh, 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 balance matter in that topic? Yeah, I think there is value and balance if there are certain core things that we're willing to agree on. And I and I mentioned them. I, I think if people come in, if I can believe that you are coming in and you are compassionate and that you are empathetic to people who need our help or who need a hand up, if I believe that you're empathetic to the fact that some people are just born to love a person of the same gender and that they want to marry them the same way that you and I got to marry uh, the people that we love, if we can agree on some core values in terms of humanity, I'm but more no, than no, happy. No, 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 I'm no. more than happy to have the debate about what tax policy or what how we want to spend our money, how we want to government to be structured. I'll have any of those debates and, and accept the fact that I don't have all the answers in my party. So you're have speaking all the as a voter in that realm, right? You're not speaking as a I'd rather have all Democrats as an elected official. You're saying as a voter, I'd vote maybe for some Republicans if I knew that their no, heart I'm speaking was true. is both. I think that there because you can't you, you and Ed you and Ed bring things to the table, points and perspectives that probably otherwise wouldn't be at the table. I totally think there's agree. value in that, even though you don't have the votes. And you guys listen to push. to benefit you guys. Yeah. I've never once felt like I've been shut out and not listened to. So you and Ed might not have the votes to to push through things the way you'd like to see them. But I think that your voices have impact on the outcomes that uh, and the decisions that are made here. In the same way, I, I think uh, Matthew Ridenour had an impact and his voice was heard even when he didn't have the votes to, to push the thing through the way he and wanted it. And he was it. unfortunately collateral damage because he was a great 
leader there. But people are not, and I know that you aren't, a, have never been a defender of a Bill James, but people are not willing. I am not willing to listen to Bill James, even if he has a, a valuable perspective on something around governmental structure or taxes or whatever. If I know coming in that he is antithetical to all the, the core beliefs in my in my being and in who I am. In top 20 cities, if we keep running candidates like Bill James and putting them through a primary, we deserve to lose. Yeah. So let uh, me finish because this is this is where it gets this is where it gets even more interesting for me in my in my coming upcoming primary. We might need to stop bristling up when we hear terms like white privilege and police brutality and instead seek to better understand different perspectives and grow through conversation. Embrace yourself because we might actually need to engage with the LGBTQ community and show them that there is a dichotomy between our principles of smaller government and individual freedoms and the message we have been sending. Messages like government should be in the business of telling people who can and can't get married or what private private businesses can do with their own bathrooms on their own dimes. One small edit for you. It's not show them the disparity between your your words and your actions. It's admit to them well, because I, you don't have to show it to them. We all see it. We all see the disconnect between a party claiming it is small government and then yet wanting to weigh in on whether or not two people can marry each I'm glad, other. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you picked that out because... I, in my first draft, and this was from the heart. I didn't do a lot of edits on this. I let my wife read it before we submitted, right? And she said, the word I had in there was, uh, we, we need to engage with the LGBTQ community and explain to them that there's a dichotomy. And she no. said, nope. explain to them? No. And I was like, you're right. That is not right. So I started with, so I moved it to, I moved it to the, that word is important. I'm not a wordsmither normally, but that's important because to me, the word show meant demonstrate. It meant through our actions. So maybe there's a way I can tighten that up. But so, so what do you think? What do you think about, uh, there's a lot more that I engaged in there. And of course, I almost avoided, I put a paragraph in there about Trump. I avoided it. I didn't want to talk about it. But then I realized if I do all of this and say all this stuff, and I don't, and I don't even mention the angle of Trump, which clearly had an impact in a top 20 size city, uh, the left would skewer me. So what do you think? I mean, I think for Republicans to win in competitive urban seats, they're going to have to do more than just say there are things that I like about the president and things that I don't. They're going to have to specifically list and call out the things that they don't like that he's doing. And But and again, why? Why do I I understand why people get mad about it. Because but other, is there no future where I have to literally every time I engage on Trump, I either say something good and lose half the room or say nothing at all, or I say something bad and lose the other half of the room. Like you, I mean there's it's can, a no win situation. You can embrace policies and reject the person. And I think you can say I I believe that the direction our country is going, and this is this is a statement you would make, not necessarily one I agree with. I believe you can say I believe that that the tax policies that have been implemented are beneficial for America. I don't believe that you, I think, do. You can I say, do. but I think those look could at have the been, economy. I'm not I'm not arguing the tax point. My point is, if you believe in what he's doing with taxes, you can say I believe in those policies that that demonstrate the Republican stance on taxes, but I think we could have achieved them with John Kasich or with Ted Cruz or with anybody else in this damn country besides Donald Trump. And you can say Donald Trump is a, is a small minded bigot, which he is. And you can say, you don't know that you've never met him. I know people through their actions, and I've seen I've seen the actions of this president. He has. It's really hard at our level, sitting around here in a little city, 
looking up at a president with a thousand different things. But I'm not saying yes, I'm not saying no to that. I'm saying, how can you be so sure? How can you be so sure that people that do have bad faith and do have ill intentions sure. in mind have have created the narratives and maybe that is or isn't him? I mean, I can be I can be sure that that at least younger Republicans who hopefully agree with you on a lot of the things you just discussed could have achieved the tax policies, the fiscal policies, the, some of the things they like about what Trump has done with any of the other people that were in the Republican primary in 2016 for president. They, those would have probably advanced those same causes and would not have embarrassed us on a global stage, would not be the, the type of human being that Donald Trump is. Now, a lot of them, I, I didn't think were great people, but they're all better people than the person who's currently in the White House. All right, so, so look, so you look. can reject him. You don't have to say, "Oh, praise on Donald Trump," or Donald. You know, I don't like that he tweeted this thing yesterday. You don't have to. I, I address just hate everything the, he does. I just hate the fact that I but have no to reject to admit, or I have to support. I but, just, but, but no one's willing to so admit. Let me, so that let me This say, guy is just a not a good human being because because nobody actually knows that. I think. A lot of people know that. So let me tell let me tell let me tell you what I actually do know. And and, and I've never taught you know I I steer so far clear of addressing Trump one way or another uh, to this point. But I'm not going to do that now. I'll tell you what I really believe in Trump for the first time on a, on a stage that is beyond one person in a room. I like what he's done in, from a policy perspective, particularly economy, taxes, unemployment, like all that. Let's put that aside. As a person, when I decided that I would vote for him. And I did vote for him in 2016. You know why I decided to? I said, I was so tired of how one-sided and overly PC that this, that this nation was becoming. Example, last week, some lady comes out and says, hey, I would follow you to a hanging, right? the candidate who's running. I'm sure if you know about this, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now I saw that. And voters still have an opportunity to vote against her. But but listen, but listen, I didn't, I don't know what's in her heart. And I certainly don't love some of the way she's responded to the backlash of it. But in what, at what, in what world is saying the word hanging bad? People were hanged in this country. Now, if she had said lynching, that's totally different and, and unappro- not appropriate whatsoever. But she just, that's the overly PC world I was talking about. And I thought that Donald Trump was the guy, not the end solution, but the grenade for a period of time to come in here and blow up and level set the world back to somewhere where we, you know, we weren't all needing to be scared of what we said now with that. And then someone else would come after that and then move towards more of what I was hoping for later. I thought he was the perfect guy for that. And a lot of the things I saw for a long time, I still believe that. But the one thing I'm feeling now on that angle is I feel like it's actually making it worse. It's actually further dividing us. Urban, rural is further dividing. And PC is actually further it's people are, are are open to saying more things and some people abuse that and i'm not saying anyone who takes advantage and comes out and says okay white supremacy or this or that you know what i condemn all that i absolutely condemn it but just that the pcification people are saying more but the but the it hasn't leveled us out it's divided the gap further so it, my point is i still want to avoid that topic now i'm not going to avoid topics going forward even the ones that are uncomfortable for me but i want you to know in my heart i'm not out here bashing trump or supporting trump because i'm kind of in the middle like that your son is old enough now that i'm sure he watches tv and has some sense of what's going on yes if i would aspire for our country to have presidents who regardless of whether you agree with their politics or not you could be comfortable with your child watching them on TV and emulating some of their behaviors. And I, I would 
I'm uncomfortable with some of those things. Yes. I would hope so. Yes. If, if your son is watching on now, if your son had, had been old enough at the time to watch George W. Bush, who I disagreed with on probably 98% of his policies or president Obama, who you probably disagreed with on 90 plus percent of his policies. Those are both people that I don't think you'd be scared for your son to emulate in terms of their personality and, and the way that they present themselves, the way that they interact with and treat other people at least on a surface level, because we don't know these people below a surface level, but on a surface level, and I presume far deeper, the way that the president talks to and treats other people, the words that he uses, the actions that he takes are things that I would assume as a parent, and I'm not one, you would be mortified if your son started to emulate. There are many things I would be mortified on that front. I mean, you would be an idiot not to be, but there's also another side to that coin. Back to that over PC world, there was also this feeling for a lot of us who, who, you know, who felt like we are a strong nation who has a responsibility to help other nations, but, you know, we, we kind of passively were floating around and, you know, I like a little bit of a harder line. Now, I'm not saying that was taken too far in if cases, he came home but from there's, school, a, there's a balance If there. he came home from school with a note from his teacher that said, your son today in school told one of the foreign born children in his class that that Mexicans are rapists. Yes. And, I mean, terrible. You would, that's, you would yeah, probably I mean, be in tears. Not, I think I, I, if anyone listening thinks that that's the thing I'm supporting, no, that is not I, I'm it. not saying what, it but, is. But what I'm but, saying is how can you, but that is so gross that it just overrides anything good that he's doing. And I'm not sure I could find anything. I think that's good, but if you like his fiscal policies, that stuff's out the window. If someone is so morally bankrupt as to say the things that he says, then I don't care if he's but doing see, a single thing. Good. And the and the other the other major problem that I have here, and why I said statements in the beginning of this little part of our conversation that I did about you don't know, is one thing that drives me nuts is the media coverage. In fact, that's probably pushed me more to be skeptical on the things I've heard about him because I see things that the media covers today on him, and literally he can do no right. Now I'm saying he you can do wrong and he can do right. Give commentary to the things he does. It's a full-on attack. Just, They're you looking can literally for just things. play the things he says. You don't even have to analyze them. Look, <laughs> it, there are many examples where, where, and this is why I don't want to talk about Trump because we get into this free. So the the bottom line is this: I don't have my. I'm writing this blueprint up, and I say clearly in this article. I don't know how to address this one yet. I don't know how to handle it. I've just told you honestly where I am. I am not trying to find a position so that I make as many people happy to vote for me as possible. I no longer care about people voting for me. I am only going to speak what's in my heart and what I believe will help Republicans not die in top 20 cities for the next year. And I'm telling you the honest truth. There's things I like. There's things I don't like. There's things that really concern me about the press right now. And there's things that I don't want my son to see and and repeat. But there's also things that uh, I was hoping, and I still am hopeful, that maybe it makes the world more PC and ma- or the nation more PC and, and balanced in that PC-ness, not freaking over the top like it was before. So I'm, I'm, st- I'm open to suggestions. My approach is going to be listen to others, find approaches and angles that make sense on Trump particularly, and as much as I can, not avoid questions, but just focus locally. Man, I just uh, I don't want to lose half the room every time I make a comment on this. I want to focus on things that we care about, all the other stuff I talk about in this well, op-ed. And you have focused locally, and I'll keep using Matthew because I think he's your equivalent on county commission, has focused locally. But the fact of the matter is that it, it's not totally up to you whether you get to because Matthew was probably – I mean, Democrats ran a strong candidate. There was a big wave. 
this historically is going to kind of move in that direction two years into a presidency, all those things. But at the end of the day, he and others were probably punished for the president, whether they Matthew ever, was no doubt punished for things right. uh, uh, upstream. So it, he's he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the president, and he wasn't a big Trump supporter in 2016. If I remember correctly, it was a Rand Paul guy. But that doesn't matter. I mean, people are are going to look at they're going to assume you're with someone unless you say you're not. And I don't mean that that you or Matthew or anybody else should have to spend all day talking about. The this is why I don't have a solution it's a for this. Distraction. Yes, it's a distraction from the work we're supposed to be. No doing. matter what I say. There's no but at right some answer. Level people need to know that a Matthew, a you, a whoever, and this is, I think, the direction you're trying to go in. Reject certain things that people associate with the Republican Party. And is it unfair to say that every Republican is against gay marriage, or that every Republican is a, doesn't believe in climate change? Of course it is. That's, at what point does my party not, have to, and the people that are at the top of it, have to define me? At what point do am I not able, through my actions and what I decide to focus on, be the one that defines my party? And I guess, to be fair, I can answer my own question. It goes back to that trust bank concept. I, I A lot of us, especially in top 20 cities, don't have the trust bank built up where we can't talk about it. I get it. I don't have an answer for it. Well, and the Republican Party, at least in our state, has also been the one, and I'm, I'm guessing in others, but I can't speak to it, has been the one who has wanted to move more towards partisan elections and judicial races. So, I mean, the the Republican Party has said, "Yes, define us by the letter by our name. We want our ju- we want you to know the judges how they're registered." And and so I think that le- that is now turning judicial races into partisan races. They've said, "Yeah, put an R by our name. That's who we are." And so that that does mean you're going to be defined by your party when you're when not you that's jo- that's 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 organizations and committees jockeying to try to get the most people to win as they possibly can interpreting for better or worse what people are going to vote more for so i mean as we move further towards partisan elections and and less cooperation people will can be more defined by their party not less and so i think there are a number of people who are in the weeds enough on the work that we do or the work that any level of government does to know the nuances of each individual's personality. Not all nine Democrats on Charlotte City Council are the same person or the same vote the same way, but there's only enough, a certain amount of people that are in the weeds far enough to know the nuances of each person and what their priorities are and what their beliefs are. And a large portion of people are just going to say, well, they're a Democrat and I'm going to vote for them or I'm not for that specific reason and, and the same for Republicans. So I think, huh. I think what you're doing is, is necessary because the end of the well, day, of course you do. No, but well, you ought to. I mean, it shouldn't. Uh, and it, I do. It doesn't take much to look at when in an, a huge election, only one Republican out of Mecklenburg County gets elected. That ought to be uh, an, a pretty good opportunity for self-reflection. So I think that the, the party has to. I mean, any new Republicans that are joining the party are, are probably coming in with a lot more shared values with a you and a Matthew. And, and the people that you're losing in the party are probably, I mean, at least Republicans who are dying are probably more conservative. Republicans who are joining, whoever is, are probably not as hardline as a Bill James. So you've got to start embracing the future of what your party could be and not the past of what your party has been. Yeah, but yeah, that's easy to say. And it's hard to do when the va- the average age of the person who voted for me in my primary was 65 and there are a lot of 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 
uh, older baby boomers, some greatest generation folks, the folks that are really plugged in, tuned in that I talk to that actually a lot of this stuff resonates with them. But that but that, you know, that not all and not a majority. And to be totally honest, uh, it's it's when new Republicans enter this. They, you know, they feel the need to win. I know I was there 10 years ago. And you, and you think, okay, you look at the demographic and you say, what can I, what do I need to do? And without compromising myself too much and focus on to win. And, and unfortunately, that's where we are. It's not going to end tomorrow. And my hope is that we can make this shift before it's too late for Republicans to exist here anymore. I, I think you and others can make appeals to older conservative voters that will resonate and that will continue to secure their votes without and again i think we can make a you, case you didn't do I, I don't know that you we didn't can do, do this it. but I, I don't think there are people out there who are still relying on fear-mongering on lgbt issues on immigrants on things like that i, I think there's things that are more important to your older conservative voters it, a lot of aging issues just specifically and and kind of obviously but i think there are things that will resonate that don't require the the fear-based tactics that some of the national level people in the party have resorted to to try to scare people into voting Republican and, and look we'll see man I, I don't I don't know I I hope that's I my for, hope I look forward to uh to to digging into with you the feedback you get on this op-ed when it gets printed oh, I'm, gonna, I'm sure yeah, dude it is it gonna will, come fast I got the the observer article that Jim Morrill did that dropped yesterday uh, online which, which was tame by comparison very very tame just the title of, of a quote I said at the end of uh, urban Republicans going the way of the dinosaur and dodo bird. I, I, I'm, I'm already going to get feedback just on the fact that I've said that. So wait till I say this stuff. But the beauty is... I, Most I, of what I, I've seen is people I laughing at care. you referencing the dodo bird. Not, I, I mean, people need to start thinking about the dodo bird again because that was an incredible animal. Just like Republicans in top 20 suits. R.I.P. dodo bird. All right, man. That was way longer than it was supposed to be. We'll be back right after the break with Dr. Michael Bitzer. Dr. Professor. Analyze last week's election. Hey, yo, I'm standing at the bar with a few months ago. Hey, yo, I think she's eyeing me from far. All right, R&D in the QC. We are here with Dr. Michael Bitzer. Dr. Professor. Dr. Professor Michael Bitzer, professor at Catawba College of Political Science, Political History, all things political, and also a member of the Bowtie Wearers Club. Dr. Bo- Dr. Bowtie professor. Caucus. Yes, the Bowtie. Dr. Professor, it's an honor to have you on. Oh, that's it actually is. your Twitter handle, isn't it? it Bowtie, is. Bowtie, Bowtie, Bowtie Caucus. Bowtie Politics. Is okay, Bowtie Twitter Politics. handle, but I'm part of the Bowtie Caucus. So, I've watched yes. you from afar on many different programs well, where your you. analysis is uh, for data nerds and election <laughs> political nerds like uh, myself. You are the guru. Data yeah. geeks unite. Yes. You know, exactly. It's a pleasure to be here. So there seemed no one more appropriate. Uh, the day before the election for us to have on, then Michael Dickerson from the Board of Elections to tell us how it was all going to go down from a logistical standpoint. But now that it all has gone down, uh, and since we don't live in Florida and we know what happened here in North Carolina, um, we, we wanted we, we thought there was no one more appropriate to have on. Yeah, we do have one uh, hanging chat, as it were, in our legislative delegation in Mecklenburg County. We can talk about that a bit. But a week removed from the election – 
thought no one more appropriate to have on here than you to see what your take was on uh, the Republican sweep on county commission, a lot of the new faces that will be going to Raleigh, uh, and then maybe more broadly looking at the state and some of these constitutional amendments and judicial races. So we'll just let you start wherever you want to start, and we'll uh, we'll free flow through a discussion of, of what all happened last week. What's your biggest sure. – takeaway in looking at the data that's incomplete but starting to show a picture so far i i think the picture has certainly been painted that this was a democratic wave that you know the 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 Mecklenburg great or nationally i think i think nationally i think in in terms of a state i think in terms of mecklenburg it it was a wave now you have to define what you mean by a wave right. and usually what we mean is a pretty substantial number of seats going to the opposition we know in midterm elections, presidents and their parties are always on the ballot. It is a referendum on the president. It's a referendum on the party in power. And I think, you know, even though we were in a blue moon election cycle, we didn't have a major statewide contest going on. I think it was still enough of a wave to say, look at the number of House seats, look at the number of Senate seats, look at how things have pretty much uh, played out at the ground level, as opposed to if we were in Florida with a uh, very tight uh, gubernatorial and Senate race or in Texas or something like so let me, that. So let me just, uh, so we're starting at a real high level. Sure. I think we'll dive down into more Mecklenburg specific, yeah. but let me just slightly push back and okay. you're the guru, right? I'm, I'm the uh, hobbyist. I, I, the way I kind of started framing it in my mind based on what I've seen is it seemed less like a blue wave to me at a national level when you look at, of course, I mean, if you just look at the two years in to the mm-hmm. first term of a new president and a new party, there's always losses. And in fact, the losses when you look at, I guess, the last two Democrats from Obama and Clinton perspective, much worse in both the House. The House, they lost 50 and 60 seats yep. each. And, you know, six to nine in the Senate, Trump gained in the Senate and lost half that in the House. So I felt like that was less of a wave and more like a muted uh, trend. Uh, And then the wave really hit Mecklenburg. Do you agree? Although also the people talk a lot about the U.S. House and U.S. Senate races. um, But it was interesting because we didn't, as Democrats, make much progress or we didn't make any progress in the U.S. Senate. But we did in governor's races. So that was and, an and state legislative too. races yeah. as well. I, I think that 2018 has to be looked at as the tale of two elections, one in the U.S. House, one in the U.S. Senate. U.S. Senate, the deck was stacked against Democrats. They were running in ruby red states, North, uh, North Dakota, Missouri, Indiana. I mean, those those are states that Trump won 20 plus. So that's going to be a hard task to try and accomplish. They did it in, in uh, West Virginia with Joe Manchin. But, you know, there are dynamics going on in that state that I think was was unique to to that. For the U.S. House, remember, you're also dealing with uh, uh, districts that have been heavily drawn in terms of favor to to Republicans. And this state was a prime example. Yes, the ninth was went by 49, 48. It was very close. Most of the others were were not as competitive uh, in terms of the, the second, the 13th. The, the other districts, the, the 5th, the 6th, the 7th, the 10th, the 11th, they were all pretty much standard in terms of how we would expect those districts to perform. So even with what, what I always describe is in midterm elections, Republicans have two built-in advantages. One, they show up 
at a higher turnout rate than Democrats. And two, they had the advantage of the district's behavior in terms of political uh, voting patterns. So those two walls of Republicanism in a midterm being crested in some way, shape, or form by a Democratic wave, you have to have a pretty high wave to get over those sure. two barriers. So that's why I would say, yes, there was a Democratic wave. Nothing like 2010 in terms of the Tea Party insurgency and the Republican really good year in a year ending in zero. They got to set up the districts the way they, they wanted to. And the districts pretty much performed even in this kind of democratic enthusiasm, democratic energy, and there were dynamics that were happening at the ground level that don't necessarily show up at the district level that I think also tends to play into all this. So let's take one step forward now. Yep. Uh, an another mm -hmm. conclusion I'm starting to not just come to, it's, uh, and it's not an original conclusion, everyone and their mother has said it, but one that is now hit me over the head with a two by four in that this is the underlying theme is is truly even greater divide towards some path of a future i have no idea where it's going to go of urban rural mm -hmm. and i mean if you look at as we start looking at the mecklenburg numbers themselves where is where i kind of really dove in locally into those numbers we've seen so far i mean you see the difference between you know a, a house nine with the with the harris race that's got the bottom wedge of, of, of a Mecklenburg urban world and then rural all day and a sure. result there versus the results we saw locally. I mean, where, where is your analysis pointing you on what urban and rural means today versus five years ago and what it's going to look like in five years from now? A, a couple things. The way that I look at this divide, you almost have to classify it into four discrete groups. There's the central city urban area. Then inside of an urban county, but outside of a central Suburb. city, is suburbia. Then you get into the surrounding suburban counties. Then you get into rural counties. So, so suburban is just the waiting list to urban voters? Uh, and, is, that, is that what we're at? Well, and, and what I have found in terms of voter registration is, yes, urban cities are heavily registered Democratic. They're voting more and more Democratic. We're seeing that, and, and to kind of tangent off, that Southern Republican wedge of, of Charlotte a lot of people are surprised by that. They shouldn't be because it's been transitioning since 2004. Yeah. So that that area that used to be ruby red, I wrote a blog piece today uh, that's up at oldnorthstatepolitics.com, and it shows the maps of how those precincts have changed. So I would encourage folks to, to first go take a look at that. But you get into the suburban precincts that are inside of an urban county, they are evenly divided in registration numbers. Third, a third, a third. So there's your kind of morphing of democratic seepage outside of urban areas into suburban areas within an urban but county. But is that not attributed to just the growth, essentially? It's, it's growth, it's generational, it's, it's a bunch of dynamics going on. When you get into the surrounding suburban counties, Union County is a perfect example. The Harris-McCready uh, race, basically was decided between Mecklenburg and Union County. Both of them had about comparable numbers, 
but Union County went much more heavily for uh, Harris than necessarily Mecklenburg and its precincts went for McCready. So that dynamic, surrounding suburban counties are more Republican than rural counties in North Carolina. So that's a dynamic. So is that to say that Union County, as one specific example, is is not trending towards purple? It's actually getting redder. It's it's getting redder, but the dynamics of not just suburban transition nationally that we're seeing, but I also really strongly believe it's a generational dynamic that's going on as well. And this tectonic shift between urban, suburban, rural layered on top of the generational dynamic that the state and country is going through, those are the two kind of fault lines that once it breaks, it's going to be significant in my mind for both parties in a very different dynamic than what we're seeing today. So when we bring it down a little more local to what happened in Mecklenburg with our legislative delegation um, first, and then we'll delve into county commission, it looks like, and we still sitting here today have not gotten a hundred percent confirmation, but it looks like uh, Rachel Hunt, daughter of former governor Jim Hunt, will be headed to represent uh, that portion of southeastern Mecklenburg County in the North Carolina, 100, North Carolina 100th District in the North Carolina House, um, replacing Representative Bill Brawley. If that holds, which it, it appears it will, then Senator Dan Bishop from a similar area there in, in southeastern Mecklenburg County will be the only Republican in our legislative delegation. Yeah. How surprised were you? I mean, I think we all knew that a couple of seats were going to change hands here in Mecklenburg County. And the Democratic seats we were defending were not very much in jeopardy. All of the Republican seats were expected to be competitive. So just statistically, you'd assume some flip. Were you surprised to see all but one change hands? I I certainly was. one particular, what was the secret to that one? I've got to dive into that one just to kind of see what what the difference between that district, uh, Dan Bishop's district, and the other districts are. But I I really was not surprised. I knew that they were going to be competitive. The early word that I had heard on the ground in this community was indeed Andy Doolin and Scott Stone is going are going to have a fight on their hands, and they did. I think it was just the culmination of a natural dynamic. If you go back to last year's mayoral race, I mean, generally you tended to see a fairly competitive D versus R in that one. It acted as if it was a presidential uh, race in that regard. So I think the dynamics of what is happening is Mecklenburg is settling into its pattern. Its pattern starts at the top. It works its way down to the grassroots, to the local level. And you're going to see that pattern kind of play out more and more, I think, uh, in into the future. Now, the question for uh, Mecklenburg's uh, is, you know, if you are in the minority party in the legislature and you've only got one voice, oh, man. how difficult Brutal. is it going to be to Brutal. have that? Were you more surprised by the Bradford loss and the potential Brawley loss? I mean, that, the Bradford loss was one I, I didn't see coming. Christy Clark's a great candidate and a, a great person, and I knew it would be competitive, but I really was, uh, I mean, He's been there longer than right. Doolin or Stone. Yeah. He's he's in a leadership role for the Republicans. Uh, was that did that hinge on stances he's had in the past on toll lanes, or still? I, I think a lot of that area is still I seventy seven toll, you know, sensitive, and and the dynamics there in that part of the county is still very much geared on that. I think the Brawley race, you know, for the amount of money. 
that got hmm. pumped into that race for a state house insane. race insane. is just insane but that's what it takes to get to that point you've got to use all the dynamics that you're built in and then you got to have that extra ammunition i think the money was was the key at the end of that brawley race do you think that the school issues that were bubbling up that he was very central to um helped him or hurt him in his final vote count or is it hard to say i think that's hard to say but i think it's it's it, it it's a dynamic that I think that was the one that really surprised me the most in terms of the flips. So let me ask let me ask two real database specific questions that I'm still <laughs> scratching my head on. Okay. And Larkin and I are going to have a, a segment right before this that I dive a little deeper into, into some nuances. But here's here's one that I haven't been able to interpret. So in as you look forward to next year and you look at the city mm-hmm. council districts, mm-hmm. clearly a big topic is District Six and District Seven. District Six is mine. Yep. Is uh, you know. those may be uh, in big trouble. Jim Morrill wrote an article on it that dropped uh, yesterday and today. So here's what confuses me, though. I have 35 precincts in District 6, and District 7 has 20. And when you look at these races and these folks just in those precincts and the ones they overlap with, so you've got um, in District 6, when you look at, you know, Doolin and Lofton in just those precincts in both of them, um, that they have coverage, uh, Doolin beaten handily there. When you look at, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the local races and, mm-hmm. and some of those things, everyone kind of gets wiped out in, in a couple of those areas. But Bishop wins, who has 22 of those 35 precincts, wins those net out. Okay. He also wins those net out when, when down ticket from him in the house in those exact same precincts, it, it, they don't win. Right. So, so that's question one is, is it, it's gotta be more than just, than just party based demographic themes in here. Yeah. And so what did Bishop do differently that he wins and doesn't? And then here's the, here's the biggest question. The second one that blows my mind in all 35 of my, of my precincts, voter ID passes by 50.4%. The income tax cap passes by 50 4% covers 32 of my 35 precincts. Mm. At what world did, <laughs> did Republican candidates lose the high ground on those who came in and voted uh, for a largely ceremonial measure like the income tax cap? Mm. All right, a couple of thoughts here. I, I would first maybe say maybe split ticket voting isn't as dead as we thought it was in this state. Clearly. Uh, that, you know, that in the research that I'm doing, we're seeing more and more party loyalty down the ballot. And maybe part of it was in the mind of the voter in those precincts, they could conceivably divorce two things. One, Republican Party dynamics uh, as maybe a rebuke to the president's party uh, with the exception of Bishop, but then convert to a public policy Republicanism and say, these are good things that we want to support. I, I just, I, I, I want to get into the weeds with the but final Bishop, number. Though. But then I Bishop's, know, on, I I know, Bishop. Bishop's I, my neighbor, right? But I, I'm no. just saying, he's not exactly... Matthew Reidenhauer no, in, in some of the ways no. he operates. And, 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 I mean, and he's, he knows he's done divisive things, yeah. and he will he will defend that in a different way. Yeah. But I'm just saying, like, it just doesn't make sense to me. I'm hoping there's more data to come that will help, <laughs> help me understand what happened. I think in next year's city council election, 
you may not have the political environment and dynamics that we're facing in this year. And so that may, again, shift the electorate to be much more localized, much more divorced from what's going on nationally or even state. But again, this sense of party loyalty down the ballot and then being able to rebuke one's party, you know, in some of these districts, the the party registration numbers still favor Republicans. But there was something going on that said, we need to send a signal and we're doing it hopscotch. So last question for me, and then we'll let Larkin Larkin have the final word and question. Um, What race shocked you most? And, And by that, I mean, like, not going into it. Like I knew going into it, Tart, for example, yep. had the deck stacked against yep. him, yep. right? His, his fate was almost pre-written in, in the redistricting. Yep. But who, who beyond that, going into it, and then when you saw the results, was, was the, the biggest shock for you because you were like, that probably wasn't supposed to happen. And if it's, if it's not the same answer, my question about county commission was going to be, again, we knew all three of the uh, Republican seats that were being defended would be competitive. And we ran three really strong candidates on the democratic side, but which one of those uh, did you most expect Republicans to hold on to? To, to answer your question first, I think the one that I expected probably was the bill James, just because that kind of deep South Charlotte district hasn't quite morphed as much but in looking deeper into the numbers, it was actually the Western precincts in Bill James's district that kind of flipped. And, Is that like Steel went, Creek? Yeah, yeah. That, that's, that's that area. I think the one that, that really was the surprise was the Brawley race. Uh, just because those southeastern bre- uh, precincts that, that hug up against Union County, they are still reliably red Republican districts uh, precincts at the presidential level and to have that kind of performance two years ago and now to switch to basically purplish uh there's some there may be something going on do you think that has has any that was impacted at all by those that last final week's uh articles that came out about his uh, alleged one way or another conversations with the school board asking for jeter Jeter's reg, reg, resignation in exchange for, you know, them backing down on some of the Do, bills. Dr. Bitzer can ask that question on, he'll be on Flashpoint with Charlie Jeter this weekend. <laughs> so we'll send you. Charlie's going to know the answer. I'm not sure Charlie even knows the answer to that necessarily. Does that impact though? I think, you know. In it the, might 50 votes. It, it, oh, it, yeah. oh yeah. I mean, every, every vote literally counts. We say that every election year. But that one especially. And maybe that was a tipping factor. We just... We don't know, but I think there's a lot of dynamics. That's why I say local races tend to hinge on things that may not have any impact anywhere else, but that dynamic could play out. Do you believe, final question, do you believe that um, Charlotte and Mecklenburg is going to go the way of Atlanta for the last 20 years and the dodo bird and the dinosaur for Republicans at a municipal and state level, having been a, a, a tale we tell our children at nighttime of the days when they used to exist. Should, should Tark brush up his resume? Yeah, exactly. 
I think North Carolina urban counties are trending the same way the national urban counties are. And I think for Republicans in particular, if I was a Republican strategist, I would be concerned about the dearth of millennials and Gen Zs who are absolutely not registering Republican. You've got the latest numbers, I think among 18 to 21-year-olds, Gen Zs now, only 21% statewide are registering Republican. And you know why? Where, where do you think, where do they get all their news, Larkin? Where do they get their Hopefully updates? last week tonight with John Oliver. Uh, yeah, Saturday Night Live's uh, uh, news uh, update. They get it from uh, The Daily Show. And guess what? This is just a, they're, they're just 30 you mean, you, minute bashathons. It's It's hard to believe that a 20 year old wouldn't want to watch Sean Hannity. I mean, I'm not, it seems look, so appealing. I'm not saying there's a lot of fantastic <laughs> alternatives that millennials align to. I'm just saying I get why you know, this trend exists. You know, because even Fox if News. If you say you're a Republican or conservative in college today or in the younger end of millennial, that's millennial when we stuff you in your locker. You better freaking, you better, you better, you Duck know, and buck cover. Up. You better get ready to defend yourself. Well, that that is true, but I, I teach college students on a wide range and wide spectrum at Catawba College. And I have noticed some of what I would consider conservative students look at today's modern Republican Party and say, this does not fit me. The party has, in fact, I had a student come up to me yesterday after talking in Southern politics, and we were talking about the switch in the parties and the dynamics moving forward. And she said, I no longer feel comfortable. I'm a conservative. I have faith. I don't feel comfortable in this party. And if that, and if a 20 year old who knows her ideological perspectives, who has her beliefs, feels that way, that to me is a danger sign Look, that, for one party. That is a, I, I think that is very spot on for the trend today. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you the difference between a 20 year old saying that and me, a 38 year old saying that. Cause I say that too. I look around. I don't always feel comfortable in my party, mm -hmm. but I am my, my conservative principles are rock solid. And, and I've been in this party and I've put enough blood, sweat and tears into it that I know it's people like me and the people I associate with that define my party. My party doesn't have to define me and I'm not willing to give up on it. Mm -hmm. So, but there's a big difference between me at 38, who is the world's oldest millennial yeah. and someone who is at 18, the world's youngest millennial who has no, no skin in that game. Right. And, and they're making a decision. So we, uh, we've got, a, we've got, I'm not giving up and I don't think it's without hope looking at some of this data, but we've got work to do. Well, Dr. Michael Bitzer, we certainly Dr. appreciate Professor. you coming. I think he just goes by doctor. Um, we appreciate you coming on. We hope you will come back on. And maybe uh, if Tarek and I get reelected and the show lives on in 2019, we can do a 2019 election recap in September and November then. Well, we'll be able to do one anyway, because even if we both get out. Podcasts ousted, don't require uh, Yeah, uh, <laughs> we could office. We could still be an R&D in the QC. Yeah. It doesn't, the, the title doesn't imply that we're elected. So we could, R &R. We could we keep this going on. No, I don't think so. We'll see. I, I have to say, this, I think, is what the country needs more of. This, you know, you, you both... Irreverent firmly, podcasts. Well, no. You both <laughs> firmly believe in your philosophy, but you're willing to engage with each other in ways that I think is something this country and this community desperately needs. Do you mind so, if we play that clip over and over again in our sure. intro? 
Excellent. You okay. might have just replaced our friend David Borax <laughs> as our intro. Yeah. Great. We appreciate you coming on. Hope yeah, you'll come time. on soon. And if you would like uh, to have us come out and speak to your class at Catawba College sometime, I know you didn't invite us, but uh, I will invite ourselves. We'd love yeah, to do it. To yes. Do All right. The good people of Salisbury. Dr. Professor, thank you so much. We'll be right back. We are here live in Los Angeles with my trusty sidekick, Larkin. I'm not your sidekick. Yes, you are. You're my sidekick. And you know what? We have a very special guest here at the NLC National League of Cities Convention, Mayor of Little Rock, Mark Stodola. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Uh, It's actually our city summit. We've got over 3,800 people here. And I'm very honored to have served this past year as the president of the National League of Cities. Now, hang on. You did this here in Charlotte last year, right? Yeah, yeah. I was was elected in the Queen City Mm. of Charlotte. Yeah, it was a much better time and place. Well, absolutely. We love Charlotte. (laughs) We love Charlotte. And I'm ending it in the City of Angels. So it's, uh, you know, two, two cool cities here in our country. No question about it. Which one's cooler than the other, though? Well, of course, Charlotte is. Of course, of course. Larkin, question? Because you're listen, you're, all the listeners of this are Charlotte listeners, so well, the man's a politician. He knows how to uh, he knows how to butter people up. Now, Absolutely. Say, you know, I'm a fairly good politician. No, no pressure. You're the first president we've had on the podcast. That's true. First president of a major organization. Well, I'm honored. I'm honored to be with you guys. We've had some senators. We've had some... Other Congress folks, people, Congress yes. peoples. So tell our listeners what the National League of Cities is and what the National League of Cities does. Well, the National League of Cities represents uh, 19,000 cities and towns uh, throughout the country. It's the oldest organization in the country representing uh, municipalities and the people who are elected to a local office who are really doing all the work to make our citizens a greater and better life. Uh, we're not seeing anything going on in Congress. We're not seeing anything from the administration. Uh, all we see is division and divisiveness. And it's just like this podcast. I got a Republican. I got a Democrat. I got you two guys here working together to do what? To help Charlotte citizens do better. Really? To make Charlotte great again? Absolutely. <laughs> we, we, we don't phrase it that way usually. Um, what... So, oh, you know, <laughs> no, he doesn't. Typically not. Um, <laughs> what are the biggest issues with your with your hat on as mayor of Little Rock? And you are uh, the outgoing mayor. You have decided not to run for re-election. What are the biggest issues you're wa- working on in Little Rock right now? Well, you know, I've spent 12 years as mayor, and um, um, we've seen some tremendous growth over the last 12 years. Yeah. So, you know, mayors are known for what they build. And um, we've, uh, we've done a $70 million renovation of a concert center. We're redoing our arts center. We built uh, three new police stations. We built two fire stations. Uh, public safety is fundamentally the number one thing that we have an obligation to do in terms of protecting our citizens, whether they're in Little Rock or whether they're in Charlotte. And so 
Uh, that's number one. Uh, but obviously the issue of economic development, bringing in jobs. I'm very proud that we brought in over 7,000 jobs since I've been mayor. Uh, we work very, very hard uh, on economic development. Um, I'm very proud that we've been able to create a, a wonderful entrepreneurship incubator system yeah. in Little Rock. We've got a, a tech park uh, that is uh, in the heart of our creative corridor. The creative corridor was actually started by me uh, on Main Street because it was dead for 30 years. So we put arts and culture together now with science and technology. And so we got this great collision of, uh, of the two, uh, which really creates a great 24-7 environment. And so we've seen great revitalization of our downtown. So, you know, I mean, that's what we do. So uh, what about... You, guys do, you build things. You build things, you create things, you make a better environment for your citizens. So whether it's the parks, whether it's the streets, whether it's uh, sustainability, uh, uh, you know, that's one of the things we've been working on a lot too, is uh, a sustainability program, a, a 2020 program to make our, our community more sustainable. Yeah. Uh, all of those kind of things are things that people care about. It's everyday issues that affect our citizens much more directly than what happens at the state level or at the federal level. So you, you mentioned, and I spent a good amount of time over the last decade in Little Rock about all the great things that are happening. What are some of the challenging things that you're facing right now that haven't been solved? For, for example, in Charlotte, affordable housing is one of the major items we're focusing on that's a problem area we haven't solved. What are the areas there and what are the lessons learned from your, your time in office? Well, that's a good, good question. You know, the reinvestment in the older parts of town is always a challenge. And as a, a southern city like Charlotte, you know, the issues of integration have seen our people move west. So the issues of gentrification, the issues of being able to maintain housing and quality housing or affordable housing have been very, very challenging. And so that is a real issue. So dilapidated, unsafe and vacant structures, uh, you know, we do a lot of condemnations and the ability to rebuild um, and get a redevelopers to come in and to rebuild these blocks is very, very important. And, and you know, that's one of our, our great challenges is getting people qualified to take out a loan and want to live in a neighborhood. And so we're working on those things. We built over 100 homes with the Recovery Act money that we got through the Obama administration. Uh, we got A-pluses the, from the federal government in terms of what we did. But it's never enough. It's just never enough. Uh, you know, we, we put in, during my tenure, since 2012, we put in over 11 miles of sidewalks, four feet wide, all south of what we call Interstate 630, all in our many challenged neighborhoods. That is 193 football fields, if you want to put it in context. 193 football fields. And yet people say, you haven't done anything with our sidewalks. So, you know, I think in this great age of communication and, you know, whether it's a blog or whether it's social media. Maybe a great podcast. Or a podcast. Yeah. You know, getting the message out is so very important. So my, my, you know, my challenge to the two of you as elected officials is really, really work hard to get the message out about all the good things that are happening in Charlotte. 
you know, you've got the same kind of challenges we do. But is it important? I agree it's important to highlight the good because a lot of people don't know it or see it. But isn't it maybe more impactful or important to focus and spend all your time on the bad? I mean, is that not what we're here to do, to well, fix? Course. But the point is we are doing that. We are doing that. Yeah, but uh, if all you're going to do is highlight the bad and not tell people what the good is, then you're going to you're going to always be looking at a glass that's half empty, not a glass that's more than half full. You're and so you're my in. point is, is that you know uh, that that it really is depressing. And so we all have challenges. We all know that. We all have uh, inner city neighborhoods that need work and need help, and we got to dedicate ourselves to helping on those things. But uh, there are a lot of good things happening in Charlotte, a lot of great things happening in Little Rock. And, you know, you got to be able to build. The great that. things are happening in Charlotte, and the good things are happening in Little Rock. <laughs> your, your sidewalk anecdote reminded me of a line Tark and I heard in a session yesterday, I believe from a council member in Chicago, who said, there's two things constituents don't like, the way things are and change. <laughs> That's true. You know, um, we, all talk about change. we all talk about change. But sometimes people don't like change. So I've got, I've got a question and an ask, and we're going to close out on that. All right. The question is, after 12 years as mayor of Little Rock, and you'd been in an elected office before that. Because you're about to step down. You, you have uh, decided not to run for re-election. Will we see Mark Stodola on a ballot again in Arkansas in the future? Wow. You Great know, question, Mark. I, I, I've not been asked that by my local press. Um, well, we're national or global, actually. Oh, are you global? Yeah, okay. Global. Well, Huge. The internet works. Well, <laughs> this this will get out. Um, you may see me in the future. You never say never. Um, we've got a we got a state sen- uh, we got a United States senator that uh, I, I would think that uh, hint, uh, hint. needs a challenge in 2020, <laughs> and I don't know whether it'll be me or somebody else, but I could I could get energized by that. Well. I can't speak for my Republican colleague here, but you can count on the endorsement of a district representative, <laughs> a Democratic district representative in Charlotte, North Carolina. Inside joke. Stodola for U.S. Senate. As soon as you announce you're running, you have my endorsement. Unfortunately, I love you to death, Mark. You're a great guy. I'm going to go ahead and, as the Charlotte District 6 councilman, endorse the Republican in that race. Well, that's, uh, you know, that's our Senator Tom Cotton, who's uh, ah, made some names yeah. for himself already. Yeah, true. Uh, you probably know him. So are you cons- are you considering this seriously? Well, no, I mean, look, look. You Would you like him. to do it, no, though? No, it just came to mind within 13 <laughs> right. seconds of me asking the question. Look, look, uh, I, uh, I think there's some real issues there, and I could get passionate about it. And I think that's what you need is passionate debate about these issues. Indeed. It would probably be a kamikaze race. (laughs) So here's my promise to you and my ask of you. If you run, you already have my endorsement. Oh, good. Go ahead and bank that. Yeah, bank it. That's huge. Huge announcement. I I I need a little money for that, too. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Endorse. uh, How much money are you putting in there? $100. (laughs) $100 check, and I'll I'll make phone calls. (laughs) Yeah. Now, my ask is, you are the first president that has ever appeared on R&D in the QC. Yeah. President of National League of Cities. You are friends with President Clinton. Can you get President Clinton on the podcast? Uh, yeah. Can you? Please. Well, I might be able to do that. I've known I've known uh, President Clinton and his wife 
since before they were married. I was his first scheduling coordinator when he ran for Congress in 1974. Have they ever done anything inappropriate in the library like that you guys managed? No? (laughs) We'll edit this part out later. (laughs) No, we'll keep it. We'll definitely keep it. All right. All right. Mark Stodola, Mayor of Little Rock, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's great. And uh, future senator, I look forward to helping future you. Future senator. I look forward to helping wow. you. This is impressive. If that doesn't happen, I'm I'm going to continue to um, uh, go back in the private sector and, and hopefully work with some companies that want to help cities do a better job of helping their people. So I look forward to that, my friend. That's probably a more realistic opportunity for me. No, this Senate thing is happening now. It's been announced on our It's huge. You're locked in. That's why I'm afraid. You're going to send this to somebody back in Little Rock and I'm going to have to start answering it's not really all, nice. all sorts of questions. It's not really how podcasts work, but yes, we will do that. Ladies and gentlemen, Mayor Mark Stodola, Larkin, Little Rock, Arkansas. Little Rock, Arkansas. The Rock. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you, buddy. Hey, it's been been a lot of fun. Thank you very much.